Welcome to Hope Through the Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. I'm Steve Norman with Winning at Home. Welcome to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. I'm excited to have Dr. Matt Biller as my guest today. Matt serves as the director of Winning at Home's Zeeland, Michigan campus. He is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He's been married for 21 years, father of three. Matt's been a professional therapist for over 15 years and excited to learn with and from him. Matt, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Matt, tell me a little bit about your backstory. What was home life for you as a kid and how did you find your way to to faith and to doing what you're doing now? Uh, Yeah, I grew up in West Michigan and pretty middle class upbringing. Uh, Blessed to have been born into the church and know all the lingo. (laughs) Sure. yeah, so I'm the second of three kids, older sister, younger sister. Um, lived in the same house until I went to college and got married, so lots of stability. Dad uh, worked for a school system and um, was an administrator there. Mom worked at a local university. So that's kind of the short version. Uh, I enjoyed church as a kid growing up, was involved in youth group, uh, was involved in some college ministry too, and uh I, I think like a lot of people, maybe some of our listeners, we don't really know what our date of salvation was. I, sure. I think uh, I recall several times, you know, asking the Lord to, you know, forgive me and receive the gift of salvation. So I'm going to say somewhere around 12, okay. uh, maybe stuck. <laughs> sure. Or, uh, you know, I finally recognized I didn't have to get saved every Wednesday at gotcha. the altar. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's short version. And then how did you end up doing kind of the work that you're doing now? When I went to college, all I knew is that I would just I wanted to help people, and I didn't know what that meant. Um, there's lots of professions where you can help people, whether it's teaching or the trades or all kinds of avenues. But uh, I loved sports growing up. I played baseball and basketball, and so I kind of gravitated towards like physical therapy, uh, maybe athletic training. And after taping way too many ankles of sweaty football players with salty <laughs> language. I was like, I don't think this is for me. So, <laughs> so I went more towards the medical route, looked at nursing, uh, and then ended up moving towards a bachelor's in kind of like a pre-med type thing and was accepted to a program for physician assistant studies. But at that time, I felt a call to ministry. Yeah, I can remember distinctly a time where I was, uh, I helped lead worship from time to time in my college ministry group and just playing guitar and practicing for Wednesday night, and I just felt a very real sense that the Lord was saying, hey, I'm calling you to ministry. And so, of course, that means Africa as a missionary, right? Always. <laughs> so uh, I didn't really know what it meant, so I started to talk to my, my college pastor and a couple other friends I knew and um, just felt like I need to go to seminary. Yeah. And uh, that's not cemetery. It's seminary. There you go. Uh, don't confuse them, Steve. So... <laughs> uh, in a ser- through a series of events, I was dating my future wife at that time. And yeah, I had to discern between, okay, I've been studying and working hard most of my college career to go towards a competitive field of medicine. And uh, it took some convincing of my mom and dad. Uh, I had to say, listen, um, you raised me to follow the Lord. So yeah. I think I need to do this. And they're like, really? You can you can serve the Lord in the medical field? <laughs> And I said, yeah, I got to do this. So I turned down an opportunity towards one path, and I ended up going down to um, the Assemblies of God Seminary in Springfield, Missouri, and 
started out as an MDiv major and thought I was going to thunder from the pulpit and save the world and be the next Billy Graham. <laughs> and instead, the Lord uh, directed me towards uh, a counseling major. So uh, I have a master's in counseling from, uh, from the seminary. And later on, I went and pursued a doctorate. And now I preach to a smaller audience in a private room with HIPAA <laughs> and keep things confidential. So that's, I'm still in ministry. I feel like I still get to share the good news of the gospel. And sometimes I don't even have to you know, use words in that way. I can just be right, with people. Right, right. Yeah. Matt, there's some corners in the faith tradition that aren't exactly sure what to do with clinical therapy. And I, I think that there's been a shift over recent years, but I remember growing up in certain church environments where they would just say like, well, you, you don't need to talk to a professional. You just talk to your small group leader and talk to your pastor and pray a little harder and everything will iron itself out. Where, where did the tipping point come in your journey to be able to say this, this kind of work really can be fully integrated with what I've come to know and believe about God in the scriptures? Yeah, great question. Um, I'm not sure where to start to answer that. I think the tipping point for me was probably my graduate work. I was one of those guys, one of those people who were like, yeah, therapist, psychology, you kidding me? You just need to have more faith. You just need to rub some... Jesus in that, and it'll be fine, right? right. And, uh, you know, memorize more scripture. And I would be the first to say, please talk to your pastor, talk to your elders, you know, seek out your small group uh, leader and lean into them. That's, that's great. That's good. But there are times when it's beyond what they can do. Right. Um, and I think it's, it's important for us to encourage our pastors, lay leaders um, to recognize, hey, this might be above my, my ability to to really walk closely and, and um, the issues at hand, whether it's a relational issue, it's a anxiety, depression, it's maybe a true challenge with mental illness. Um, there are helping professionals who love Jesus and they can step in and they've got additional training where they can, they can create kind of a marriage, if you will, between theology and faith, but also psychology um, to help bring some relief and some healing. For me, it was probably through the process of, of my graduate work, and we had a couple of professors that were fantastic at recognizing it's, it's Jesus first, Jesus heals, but psychology can help, not the other way around. And, and that's one of the things that makes, I think, makes us different at Winning at Home, not to wave the flag too high, <laughs> but we really truly believe it's Jesus who heals. It's not the therapist. It's not the coach. It's not Dan or Steve or one of our speakers. It's Jesus heals. And there's, there's other things that can, can help along the way. Not that Jesus needs help, <laughs> but we do. We're, sure. we're broken. And, and there's lots of tools available for people. Yeah. I remember hearing that story once of the, you know, the preacher who tells the illustration of the little kid who's afraid of lightning. So he comes running into his parents' room. He's like, hey, I'm afraid. And dad's like, oh, it's all right. Jesus will help you. And five minutes later, he comes running into the room after another bolt of lightning. He's like, I'm afraid. Jesus will help you. And, you know, we go through that cycle one more time. And the dad says the same thing. Hey, yeah, I know you're afraid Jesus will help you. And the little kid says, yeah, I know, but sometimes I just need Jesus with skin on. <laughs> and and yeah, I, think that, I think that Jesus with skin on, you know, kind of Christ incarnate in the community mm-hmm. can come through a lot of different avenues. Mm-hmm. And I think that the church is finally coming to an awakening, and it's going to be different based on different theological streams and different church traditions. But it seems like it, even in the last 15, 20 years, there's been this shift away from stigmatizing therapists and clinical work towards tentatively or even wholeheartedly embracing it. What, what do you think has been behind that 
that shift or that movement within the church culture? I hope you're right. I hope there has been a shift. I, I think that's accurate um, in the s- circles that I run in. I think maybe what's created the shift or, or maybe a, a direction towards embracing therapy a bit more and not, not shunning it, not saying, you know, don't do that. Um, because quite frankly, therapy, psychology, um, psychiatry, there's still a stigma there. Whether you're Christian, non-Christian, it's like, oh, I went to the shrink. Right. Or I'm taking Wellbutrin right now or whatever it is. Like, yeah, yeah. oh, you're, you're taking head meds. Like, so there, there's still a stigma in faith circles for sure, but also outside of there. Okay. But um, the shift, I don't really know what to say about that other than uh, hopefully we're recognizing that God can use anything. God can use anyone. Yeah. Go back to Moses, right? What's that in your hand? It's a staff. Okay, throw it down. God can use a staff, a stick. Right. Okay, so he makes donkeys talk, right? right. So, so there's, uh, yeah, hopefully just a, an embracing or, or maybe there's more faith. Like, okay, well, God could use this. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Matt, I really love reading some of your academic research about the, pro- the, the project that you dove into to try to figure out how do you help couples navigate ruts or hurdles or obstacles in their relationships. Mm-hmm. And you talked about how kind of two poles of the spectrum are people who are super aggressive when it comes to conflict, super passive when it comes to conflict. What's some of the fallout with those two approaches that, that you've mm-hmm. kind of seen in your own work? Yeah, uh, good question. So I, I love doing marriage work. Um, Call me crazy, and I am a little, okay? Uh, give me two people in the room on the couch who are upset with each other, angry, they can't see eye to eye, uh, they've got issues with intimacy or parenting or money or whatever it is, and I kind of come alive. It's an opportunity, I think, to really, truly help. So the polarity of you know, one person is passive, one person is aggressive, uh, most people listening probably have heard of passive-aggressive behavior, passive-aggressive people. What I've come to find is that passive aggression has everything to do with an inability to simply be assertive. Hmm. I think if you uh, can imagine in your mind a teeter-totter or a seesaw, whatever you call it, which, by the way, they don't have those on the playgrounds anymore because, oh. you know, Johnny could fall and hurt himself. It's a lost relic. Yeah, oh, boy. So, but I, I loved teeter-totters, and I was the kid who would stand in the middle and kind of do the surfboard thing. Sure. But, so if you think of marriage as a seesaw or teeter-totter, often husband's on one side, wife's on the other, and whether that's personality, whether it's style, whether it's their family of origin, there's certainly differences, right, Yeah. between men and women. And often in the way they communicate, there's a big difference. One tends to be a bit more forward, a bit more right out there, and they're going to let you know where they're at. And the other person might be a bit more timid or slower to speak. And so there's this teeter-totter. There's a balancing act where they got to figure that out. So one of the things I did in my my doctoral work is I I wanted to research how assertiveness affected marital satisfaction, communication, and then something we call relationship confidence. Most people know what marital satisfaction is. How satisfied are you in your marriage? Sure. Um, uh, communication, how, how well, how efficient, how productive is your communication? Uh, does it produce what you want it to, which is hopefully understanding? And then lastly, the um, relationship confidence is a measure of how confident the couple is that the relationship can handle future conflict. It's something that several marriage researchers have, have looked into. Um, I leaned into several uh, true experts and researchers who, who helped me in my 
dissertation with that. So, What surprised you as you d- did your study, as you watched couples kind of learn assertiveness and then try to apply it in their relationships? So what surprised me was that assertiveness really works. Okay. Uh, and it's not what I thought it was. Many, and I would guess the majority of people listening to this, or if you have some conversation around the water cooler, around the golf course or wherever, somehow you are a nerd like me and talk about relationships and how they work. And the topic of assertiveness comes up. Most people equate that to aggression. Okay. If I'm assertive, whoa, whoa, that's not good because oh, that means you're aggressive. That means you're pushy, you're rude, you're a bully. That's not it at all. In my world and what I found in some of the research I did is that assertiveness defined is simply a skill by which we let others know where we stand. Hmm. It's that simple. It, it's, a, it's a skill. It's like a tool in the toolbox, right? How skilled am I at letting others know where I stand, right? In the sports world uh, and, and in commentary, we, sometimes they say, well, have a take. You know, first take is like yeah. an ESPN show. Like, sure. So it's, it's the commentator. They, they get the first take. They, they, they can say, well, here's what I think about that baseball team. Or here, here's, boy, that person's contract's too big. And here's why. So, so they, take, they have a take. Yeah. So they assert themselves and say, here's where I stand. That's all assertiveness is. It's, it's not, here's where I stand. And you better stand there too. It's, here's where I stand. And, and nor is it passivity. It's, it's not, well, maybe, I don't know. If I say it like this, they'll maybe, oh, I don't want to hurt their feelings. It, it, it's, it's the neutral point on the fulcrum of the seesaw. Yeah. It, it's the center point. And, and truly, if I can get a couple to stand in the middle, you can get two people. They could, one could be 300 pounds, one could be 150. You, you have them both in the middle standing. And they, they can jump up and down all day long, and that teeter-totter is going nowhere. It's stable because they're both being assertive. But as you get further away on the poles, the ends of that, of that seesaw, just the tiniest bit of movement makes that kind of fun. But that's not fun in a marriage. From your experience, what is it that compels people to withhold their take, to internalize mm-hmm. their opinion or their desires or their wants? Uh, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's lots of things. Truly, truly, I think one of the biggest drivers is what kind of family they grew up in. Okay. Was the family direct? Were they open communicators? When they were upset, did they say it? When someone was frustrated, did they just bury it deep and smolder? Okay. And everybody knows that mom's upset. But no, no one knows gonna, why. And she's not going to talk about no it. No one's going to talk about it. So, Or uh, were they in an environment where it was okay to talk? You know, a lot yeah. of what Dan says, a lot of what we encourage is talk about it. Be open enough. Be, be um, courageous enough vulnerable enough to just say, hey, you know, that upset me. Why, why did you say it like that? You, you, you could have said it this way, right? So I think family of origin, um, which in the clinical world, we call it your foo, okay. not Fu Manchu. It's okay. not facial hair, Steve. It's, right. uh, it's good to know. F-O-O, family of origin. So um, w- what climate, what culture, I, I explore that with my clients. Um, what was the emotional thermostat set at? Yeah. Was it warm and, and endearing and was it interdependent in a healthy way or was it cool and distant and kind of like, whoa, we got to figure this out on our own? Yeah. So that's a big thing. Uh, secondly, I think maybe the biggest driver is personality. Okay. Um, the more and more and more work I do with people, the, the importance of how they are 
wired, how their person is constructed, um, the constitution of how they approach life and what lens they look through, whether they're a head-centered person, cognitive, whether they're a feeling-centered person, uh, their emotion drives that lens, or whether they're a gut instinct, um, that has a massive impact on how they assert themselves, where they where their starting point on the teeter-totter is, whether they, they lean towards passive, kind of quiet, hold it in, or, or more towards, I'm going to speak my mind. Right. And I don't really care. You know, so personality is, I think those two factors, your family, you grew up in, how that flavored you, and then your personality. I think those are probably the two biggest and, uh, drivers. And then the other thing could be previous relationship experience. Okay. So you you were in a relationship, and they were very aggressive with you. So... I'm not going to speak my mind. Right. Right. So, right. yeah. Or maybe somebody's experienced rejection over the course of a relationship history and they end up being super accommodating and they say, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to bury all my wants because if my want runs counter with your want or your ability to provide for my want, it's better to just kind of leave that off the table. Yes. I agree hundred percent. And, and to the concept of a want versus a need in the research I did, frequent and regular work I do with couples, there is a difference between a want and a need, Okay. right? And people could Google that or look it up in Wikipedia. But uh, in my world, just simply speaking, a need is something you truly need. You cannot survive without it. Yeah. I need air. Sure. I need water. I need food, shelter, clothing. I need supportive relationships. I need those things to survive. Yeah. I want chocolate. <laughs> Sure. Come on, Steve. Yep. Okay. But but I don't need chocolate. Right. Right. I want to go play golf. I hope my wife's not listening, but I don't need to right. play golf. Right. So, and I think we often confuse the two. Yep. And so in in therapy, in my opinion, good therapy is, okay, let's, let's explore what do you need from your husband? What do you need from your wife? What do you need from your kids? And if we can identify the needs and then empower the person to say, I need this from you. That is one half of the uh, formula when it comes to being assertive. Assertive is two parts. It is asking for what I need or want. It's okay to express wants. I want to eat steak tonight. Right. I I need to go to the game. I I want you to hold me. Yeah. I, I need you to really listen. Yeah. Right. Those those things. It's okay to to express those in psychology. We call that needs declaration. Okay. It's a declarative statement. Um, I, I we've all flunked mind reading one hundred and one. So <laughs> unless I tell you I need this, right? You don't know, right? And and so I think that's an issue often. So to be assertive, I have to ask for what I want or need, and I have to tell how I feel. And so, if, if if I can do those two things. Then, then I then I have given an assertive statement. I need to go to bed early tonight because I feel like I'm just run down. I'm just tired. Okay, that's an assertive statement. Sure. If I only do one but not the other, if if all I do is ask, but I don't explain why or how I feel, then you can border on coming across aggressively or passively. Okay. Right. Yep. So I break that down with people and I, I use that in some of the work I did academically as well. So what do you say to couples who say, I shouldn't have to tell you what I need. We've been married for 
two months or 20 years, you should already have it figured out. Yep. And that does come up often. Okay. <laughs> uh, what I say to them is, while yes, you both have a 20-year history, a seven-year history, a 35-year history, and you probably could complete each other's sentences often, you don't really know what they're thinking, feeling internally. Unless they say it, you don't know. And if you think you know, you could be assuming. And your assumption may be correct a lot of times, but, but sometimes it's not. My, my wife, Cindy, is an amazing person. I married way over my head, even though I'm taller than her. <laughs> um, sorry, bad dad joke. Truly, I feel like I understand most of the time I, you know, her, her core needs and the things that are important to her, the things that she values highly. But in, in moments, I may know that she values quality time with me, but what she really needs, she, she needs some affection. She needs okay. me to hold her. Yeah. And she may be hurting. Uh, she could be upset at me or the kids. And like the last thing I want to do is hold you. Like you're mad at me, but I'm supposed right. to hug you. Like right. I need you to say, all I need is a hug. Okay, well, I can do that. Yeah. But if you don't say it, I don't know. And so if I don't know, I can't really be held accountable for meeting your need unless you tell me your need. Gotcha. And that's where passivity in a marriage, passivity in a work relationship, yep. passivity in a parent-child, a friendship, it's not good. It, it undermines the ability to understand each other. And, and just quickly, so to review, assertiveness is the skill by which we let other people know where we stand. You have to ask for what you want or need. You have to tell how you feel or why. And the goal is understanding. The singular goal is understanding. Proverbs 4 verse 7 says, though it costs you all you have, get understanding. It's not a suggestion. It, it, it's, it's a command from Scripture. Get understanding. Romans 9 talks about how we should uh, live at peace with all men as much as it's up to us. You can't do that unless you understand. The goal is understanding. The goal is not agreement. Agreement is um, a byproduct. It's, it's the icing on the cake. Uh, to have good communication, the singular goal by both parties has to be when I leave this conversation, I want to be understood and I want to understand. If that's not the goal, then we creep towards, well, you should see it my way. Okay. Well, I want to spend the money like this. What's wrong with you? Why don't you want to spend the money on the car? I know we talk about saving it for the kid's college. I want the car. What's wrong with you? So we try to force but agreement. It gets combative. Yeah. We try to force agreement and then understanding goes out the window. It's the cart in front of the horse and, and it, it just all breaks down. So if couples can slow down and go, okay, what can I say right now so that my spouse hears me, my child hears me? Listen, I, I need you to be patient with your younger sister because... There's the asking that the, the tell is, that's how we do it in our family. We want to be kind. Yeah. Right? Right. Do you understand that? Yes. Okay. Right. So, so we want to we move people towards understanding. It's great when we agree. I wish we could all agree. If, if, if you haven't noticed, in our society, there's not a lot of agreement going on. <laughs> sure. And, and I do think ultimately... Um, a lack of understanding, a lack of a desire to understand erodes every layer of society. Um, 
right now, it's, you know, Americana is boisterous, loud, have a take. Yeah. Be assertive. Sure. But boy, you better agree with me because if you don't agree with me, then there's something wrong with you. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's a, I think society, media, whatever you want to call it, is trying to force people to create agreement instead of understanding. And I, th- I think we, the, the train is derailed at that point and, and there's no getting it back on the tracks. You have to start with humility. You have to start with, okay, I'm going to listen to really understand you, which means I close my mouth <laughs> yeah. and open my ears. So speaking of off track, I might be a little here. So. No, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that, that calls us back to, to a refrain that we hear throughout scripture about a, a God who is slow to anger and quick to compassion or slow to wrath and quick to grace. And I think that you're right. Some of us kind of depending on whatever our own unresolved internal issues are can have the initial gear be aggression rather than assertive. Sure, or, or passivity. Like yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not going to get involved in it Yeah. because I don't want it to turn into this wildfire and like, whoa, all I said was I think we should do this. <laughs> yep. And then this caught fire and now I'm – removed from Twitter and all these other, like, like, whoa, whoa, I, I thought you wanted me to have a take. This, this, I can't have this take. Nope, you can't because you don't agree with us. So I'm not, I'm not trying to turn it political, but no, this, no. but this happens in families, Steve, sure. this, this is where husbands and wives, like, you know, my wife and I, we've had certain things we've fiercely disagreed on. And when we've worked at it and let it marinate a bit and pray and, lean into our friends and people we trust to get some perspective. When we come back to it almost every time, it's because we were trying to force agreement. We weren't trying to understand. Yeah. Um, my wife and I had a, a situation where we, we had some, some extra money that we had saved up and um, we were like, okay, this is great. What a blessing. We have this ability to maybe buy something we want and that's something we have to have for the kids in the house. And I saw it one way, she saw it another. And we didn't agree. And I was not going to be moved. So <laughs> I have a little bit of stubborn streak in me sometimes. Pray for my wife. Uh, she felt equally so that yeah. she wasn't going to be moved. And so it, it got tense. And uh, a few days later, and it took some days, uh, maybe even a week or more, and we came back to it and we slowed it down and we expressed what we wanted to have happen, what we needed. And then we shared why, why it mattered to us. And, and we were able to get to a point of understanding. And I, I did a big misstep where I, I assumed she knew what I needed or why I felt that way, and she didn't. And I did not do the hard work of articulating how I feel. And I, I think men in general, this is broad brush stroke here, I think men struggle with the tell part of assertiveness, ask for what I want, tell how I feel. Well, I can, I can tell you what I want, I want to play golf. I need to go to bed. I want these things. But when it comes to expressing, you know, the finer pieces of, you know, emotion and sentiment and all the nuances of, whoa, there's emotion down there. I don't want to look at that. And I'm a therapist, okay? So yeah, yeah. I'll help everybody else with their emotions, but that's where I misstepped. And we sorted it out and it was good. Is that a function of just not having self-awareness? You're talking about just guys in general. Is it a function of not having self-awareness or just not having the tools to articulate the why behind my what? 
I would say yes to both. I think okay. I think some of it's a lack of self-awareness. Honestly, I think some of it's selfishness. Okay. I want what I want, and I want it now. Yep. And why should I have to explain it to you? Like, we're negotiating here? You know, I, I believe uh, I, this is not original with me, but I think at the root of every sin is selfishness and pride. Yeah. I mean, if you really look for it, it's there. And sometimes you don't have to look real far, but uh, I think we get so me, me, me focused and again, if you haven't noticed, our society kind of helps with that. Sure. Uh, rather than others focused, what does my wife need right now? What does my child need? I mean, yeah, they're freaking out and having a nuclear meltdown in aisle four of Meyer, but what do they actually need? Yeah. I need you to be quiet and stop making a scene because I'm embarrassed, okay? Right. But what do they need? And so, yeah, I think some of it's lack of self-awareness. I think some of it too is People just don't have the tool. They don't have the the right yeah, tools, the right word. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get this screw into, into the wall, and all I have is a hammer. Right. Well, I, I'll eventually get it in there. Okay? It's going to be ugly. <laughs> it's going to be ugly. And then people will be like, you did what? So, yeah, I, I, I do believe that teaching people and, and encouraging people to learn how to use the tool of assertiveness uh, to add that to self-confidence, to add that to, you know, spiritual discernment, to add that to um, an ability to um, be proficient at different things, right? We, we, we want our kids to leave our house with a toolbox full of, of different things to use, right? And yeah. one of them, and one of the more important ones, in my opinion, is assertiveness. You know, they have to be able to, with confidence, with balance, with respect to others, say, Here's where I stand on this, and here's why. That's it. And I, I don't think people do that very well <laughs> these days, or I think people struggle yeah. with that. And so that's one thing I, I focus on often with helping people. So, Matt, to the person who's listening today who feels like they're in an impasse in any key relationship, whether it's a marriage relationship or parenting relationship, could even be a work relationship, what's one baby step they could take before their head hits the pillow tonight in their journey towards exercising assertiveness? So I think one step that would help just about anybody, regardless of your personality, your family of origin, your previous relationship experience, would be to just simply say, what do I want to accomplish in this conversation? When this conversation is over, when we're done talking about this topic, what do I want my, what do I want the other person to walk away with? What do I want them to understand? Okay. And if you start there, I think you have a chance of getting there. Awesome. Matt, one of the things I appreciate in your research is the whole concept of soft starts. How, how do you start towing into the waters of a conflict in a way that feels safe and productive? Yeah, so the idea of a soft startup um, that's kind of the technical term that uh, Dr. John Gottman, his wife Julie Gottman, uh, out of um, Seattle, Washington area, and then Drs. Markman, Stanley, and Blumberg out of the University of Denver, they have been social demographers and uh, of marriage. They've, they've followed marriage trends, uh, cohabitation, what healthy marriage looks like, what are the, the red flags to look for and be aware of if marriage starts to deteriorate or uh, become 
uh, at risk. Yeah. And so one of the, the skills that they've recognized that all couples can benefit from is to learn how to do what's called a soft startup. So think of a topic, any topic could be finances, could be parenting, could be sex, could be any topic that a couple or even in the workplace. Uh, oh, we're talking about the budget again. Oh, man, every time my boss brings this up, we just go to a bad place, right? Sure. So in any relationship, if there's a topic that comes up, how you enter that topic, how you launch the boat into the water is incredibly predictive of how you're going to land the boat. Okay. So if, if you uh, go into the conversation emotionally charged, with a negative attitude, with that filter of a belief or an expectation that, oh man, last time I talked to Steve, oh great, here we go again. If you go into it with that and then you start the conversation and you're a bit towards the aggressive side because every time we talk about this, is you go rather than, hey, so every time we talk about this, I've noticed I feel anxious, right? right. It's the ability to, to say to the other party, Hey, this is a this is a hard topic for me. Speak for me, yeah. right? Assertiveness actually truly should be couched in I feel, I need. It's important to me that I I me me. That's not being selfish. That's that's speaking for myself. Uh, harsh startups often begin this way. You never or why do you Right, you, 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 and and so it's immediately combative. Yeah, and another person just going to back into a corner or come out swinging. Yep. So verbally, emotionally, it feels like you're just poking them in the chest. Like, let's go. It's it's ding ding. Like like round one. Okay, yeah. that's really bad. <laughs> so, in the research of these other folks, they they've recognized that a harsh startup is incredibly debilitating towards any relationship, primarily in the microcosm of a marriage. But so to counter that you work for a soft startup. Soft startup is sometimes best done where you plan to have a conversation on Tuesday at 3 p.m. or on Wednesday at 8.30 when the kids are in bed. Just not, like you'd schedule a work meeting. Exactly. Not going down the road on the way to church in the morning and I'm going to talk about your mom and here we go. Right? Bad, bad idea. Harsh startup is... is uh, something you want to avoid. And so soft startup is just a much gentler way to begin that that conversation. It's such a great insight to be able to say, hey, I know I'm headed into a hard conversation, but I have I have some agency. I get I get to frame how I come into that conversation. And I think it's such a gift to be able to say, if I'm not ready to have that conversation, we're going to pause. I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to put the clothes in the dryer. We're, we're going to go do something else, and then we're going to we're going to put a pin in this. But we are going to we are going to circle back to it. Absolutely, and, yeah. Not only completely appropriate, it's sometimes necessary. So let's say Steve, you and I are working on a project here at work, and I feel really strongly one way, you feel strongly another, and we're kind of at you know we're at an impasse. And yeah. if we schedule a time to meet, we both have the opportunity then to prepare for it. But even after we've done that and we're in a good place, we're not emotionally charged, and the conversation could even start off well, soft startup, but then it heats up, and now we do this thing called escalation. Like an escalator, it goes up and up and up, and it's not stopping, and why are these stairs moving, and holy cow, I want to get off. So it, it's okay to go, you know what, I, I need to step back for a minute. Yeah. Um, I, I jokingly say to my clients, uh, I mainly work with adults, you know, timeouts, uh, they're not just for kids. 
So yeah. it's okay to literally make the timeout signal, like on the sidelines of the football game, and go, hey, I, I need 10 minutes. I, I, I'm about to say something I'm going to regret. I, I'm, I am not in a good place. Don't, don't do the, you need to calm down. You need a timeout. Don't do that. That always ends well. Yeah, 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 sure. So it's okay to t- take a timeout, but you got to time yourself out. Okay. And, and use, ha- have a safe word. Have a, you know, timeout. Sometimes that can be inflammatory. Whoa, you, you need a timeout? Really? Right. right. So um, it, it's okay to say, you know what, I just, I can't go any further today. Uh, in fact, I had breakfast with a friend literally this morning, and I hadn't seen him for really since COVID. And we sat down for breakfast, and uh, we kind of bantered back and forth. Hey, how you doing? How are the kids? How's your wife? And uh, he said something about the vaccine, and I said, yeah, this is, you know, I, I responded. And then I, I made one comment. It was in jest, and it wasn't against him. And, and he yeah. just kind of the conversation suddenly just stopped, and he goes, I can't talk about this. I'm like, oh, all right, no, no, no problem. He's like, no, really, I, I, I cannot. I, this is a no go for me. I'm exhausted from this. It's worn me out. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> he was very clearly asserting himself. He wasn't being aggressive, but he's like, I cannot talk about this. I won't. And I'm like, cool. And you took the hint. Yeah, and gave it was, the space. It, yeah, and, and it was you fine. You guys had a great breakfast. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Every great courtroom drama movie has a point where there's like so much tension that the viewer can't take it anymore. And the director or the writer very wisely call for like a recess in that scene, right? Mm-hmm. So the judge will ask for a recess, the lawyer will ask for a recess, and everybody will catch their breath, come back, reset, go again. Who doesn't like recess? Let's, go, let's, let's go get on the teeter-totter. It's the know? best. <laughs> Well, Matt, thanks so much for the work that you do here at Winning at Home. Thanks for investing regularly into the lives of couples who come through our doors. Thanks again for joining us on Hope Through the Hard Stuff. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.